This week on Hacker in the Fed, we offer updates on the Move It and MGM hacks. The U.S. State Department has no idea if its IT security actually works. The Senate's email system melts down in the face of a security test. Cisco can't stop using static passwords. And we answer listener questions about single sign-on, circumventing company IT rules, and LinkedIn profiles. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks ever committed. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. That caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Check us out at naxo.com for all the fun stuff we're doing. Joined, as always, by Hector Monsiger, my friend and podcast co-host. Hector's a former Black Hack hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for as many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, it was a big week for you. How are you doing today? <laughs> I love the uh, excitement when you said my name. Hector! Yeah, no, it was a good week. It was very busy. I was uh, traveling. Traveling? You had a birthday this week. Yes, yes, indeed. I hit the big 4-0, so that technically makes wow. me old, man. Damn. Yeah, well, welcome to the old club now. <laughs> yeah. So I crossed that line about five years ago, so it, it was tough pill for me to swallow. Well, you know, the cool thing about us is that we're still very young at heart, so, you know, I, I'm okay with it. Now, had you told me 20 years ago that I would be hitting 40, I would, I would probably have a mini panic attack. <laughs> young at heart, does that just mean immature? Uh, yes, exactly right. Yes, I'm still I, immature. I just, to, I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page on that one. <laughs> How was your travels? Uh, was the weather in Puerto Rico beautiful? Yeah, Puerto Rico was fantastic. Uh, weather was great. Did some more sightseeing, got to meet some more folks, uh, more networking, met a lot of great people out there. So yeah, it was a great experience. I'm glad to spend uh, my birthday out there, honestly. Outside of hurricanes, what's a bad thing of Puerto Rico? It's a great question. So it all depends on who you ask. Uh, I'm asking you. I want to know if you, do you have any bad parts of Puerto Rico or bad things associated with Puerto Rico or do you love them all? Well, like, like with any place, there are pros and cons, right? So, I mean, I'm still, I'm still like, you know, kind of navigating through there and if, if I end up moving out there, then I guess uh, I'll be able to give you a better answer. But the people were very cool. The food is I fantastic. I love the people. Yeah. Oh, the food is fantastic. It is. Oh, yeah. The people are fantastic. The food is great. There's a lot of places to go to. It's not really expensive. It's a low cost of living. The one thing that I'm seeing as I'm looking at, like real estate, for example, is depending on where you're looking at, real estate is like really skyrocketing. So... Um, if you're looking to migrate, expect to be paying like <laughs> in some places like New York costs, right? Like for rent and property and so on. To be honest with you, like when I, before I even went over there, I had someone tell me, oh man, the roads are really bad. I guess for them, that was a big selling point or big, big pain point. Um, I didn't really notice that. But then again, I was mostly in the San Juan area, so I didn't get to go beyond that. Sure. And I'm sure other places they, that might be an issue, but the beaches are nice. So far, great. I guess I'll give you more. more. I'll, I'll be able to answer that question more for you, more thoroughly, as I spend more time out there. 
What about travel? Or is getting flights pretty easy in and out of there, or are the flights limited? Like post COVID, I find flights to be a little bit more limiting. Even you know, I traveled out to Las Vegas a few weeks ago. There were less flights to pick from, less less things to choose from. Um, have you found that with Puerto Rico, or is it is it just like it was pre pandemic? In terms of flights being limited, I didn't really, I haven't really seen that yet. Each airline tends to have at least one, two, three, four, right? Uh, flights going in and out of Puerto Rico. I love the airport. It's small. I, let me tell you something. It's small, but it's 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 doable, right? Um, you know, you have access to a lot of stuff, a lot of great resources. In comparison to a massive airport like JFK, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was the last time you flew out of JFK, but it felt like I was flying out of a freaking mall. Like it's so huge. And then getting from the gate to the exit, man, it's like freaking depressing. I, I think I walked like 45 minutes to get out of there. Yeah, JFK is a huge airport. That is, is it's overwhelming. I normally, if I when I'm flying out of New York, I normally go to Newark. I don't know why. I just kind of get stuck with that and kind of married to United Airlines there for a while. Um, but I, I've recently kind of switched over to American. So you know, I'm, I'm not chasing the miles like I used to. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you this: on the return back, I went. Okay, so let's say my my, my plane was boarding at one o'clock. I got to the airport at like twelve thirty. I walked through pre-check and I was inside at my gate in like three minutes. That's dope. That is. Unless you got to the airport three hours early in preparation of there being problems. And now you have to sit there for, for three and a half hours. Which I did the first time around, right? I went there yeah. super early, like really scared. I'm going to be stuck in line. Bro, pre-check was empty. There was like zero people. There. I just walked in. I was a minute in. I'm already at my gate waiting. and I got to sit there for like two hours. Yeah, I'm an early get there guy too. I've got a friend, a former colleague at the bureau. He loves to try to time it where he just walks straight from the car <laughs> yeah. onto the plane. And the anxiety that that would cause me is out of control. Well, that's what I did last time. On my way back, I said, okay, I need to time this. Because if it took me a minute or two to get through security, cool. Um, and I got there like maybe 20 minutes before my flight. I was able to go to the store, grab some drinks, grab some stuff, and boom, straight to the plane. I was excited. Yeah, this guy traveling with this guy has caused me troubles in the past. Like, uh, we, well, we we were flying to um, we actually were going to Beirut together. Oh, um, but we were coming out of two different cities, and we were going to meet in uh, in Paris. So I get to Paris and I book my flights and, and get there. You know, I have like a three hour wait, so I, I don't mind Charles de Gaulle. That's a decent airport. Um, so I sit there and have lunch and all that, and then I get on the plane and I'm sitting there waiting, and I'm like, where is he? Where is he? Never showed up. Late, late to it. He he scheduled his flight to just get there, just in time to get on the plane. Um, so he and because he, he had been to Beirut before, uh, this was my first time. So it was always nice to have somebody with a little bit of experience to go to someplace with. Which is one of my the most exciting part for me, selfishly, is you. If you move to Puerto Rico, I have a reason to go, and I got a person to show me where all the cool shit is. You know what, brother? I'm with it. Let's do it. <laughs> See yeah. now, now I'm gonna move out there. Now you can visit. Uh, yeah, thank you. Just get a place out there. That's all I care about. So we can go vacation. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So it'd be good. So a couple shout outs this week on Hacker and the Fed, uh, Hector. I know you've done some in the past, uh, but there was a couple that, that that I wanted to do this week. Um, so Zoe, she's a veterinarian in uh, New York City. She's been a listener since day one, and I, I appreciate her listening. So Zoe, big shout out to you. Oh yeah. And Ethan. Ethan is a 10-year-old who listens to the show every week with his dad, Anthony, uh, on their way to school, and they live in Trinidad and Tobago. Beautiful. So, so Anthony, Love big shout-out to you. Um, hopefully, you know, we we get you a little excited about cybersecurity. 
and you uh, maybe think about that as a career path. You're 10 years old. Let's not put anything in stone, but but think about cybersecurity because it's it's a growing field. Um, so big shout out to uh, to Ethan and his dad Anthony. All right, Hector. So our first story is uh, Move It Maker announces new critical vulnerability affecting a different file transfer tool. So, oh, they, you know, what are we going to do? This isn't good for Move It um, and their parent company, uh, Progress Software. But let's do a quick update on the Move It hack and what what happened with there. Um, and so Move It. So those that don't remember or didn't listen to the show, uh, that one is a popular file transfer software uh, that was used by hundreds of governments and corporations and universities. The Progress software is uh, facing class action lawsuits uh, about the backlash of the, the vulnerability that was found and exploited in MoveIt. Um, the CLOP ransomware gang spent uh, weeks stealing sensitive information through the, the file transfer software. And it's estimated that 62 million and over 2,000 organizations have been affected by this breach. Wow. Um, yeah. They're saying that CLOP has ended up netting anywhere between 75 and $100 million um, just from this Move It campaign. Just a small handful of victims that succumb to high ransom payment demands. Ouch. So we're talking now nine-figure hacking crew profited from uh, from this ha- this this one breach. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, think about it like this, right? So now a lot of ransom... Okay, so here's what we know about ransomware groups. You know, they would leverage these initial access brokers or initial access specialists, whatever you want to call them. These guys that would basically break into a network by means of social engineering, credential stuffing, uh, misconfigurations in VPNs and software. Maybe, maybe in some cases, zero-day vulnerabilities. And yeah, I mean, it would be a pretty wide range uh, or broad set of potential victims. Many of those victims may not be able to pay a big ransom or ransom in general, depending on where they are, et cetera. But what Klopp gang and these other groups, what they kind of maybe figuring out now is, wait, if we focus our efforts on identifying what software different industries use and we're able to access that software, purchase it, you know, steal it, whatever, and reverse engineer it and identify vulnerabilities in it, now we could strategize and narrow our focus on very specific industries, okay? This is very scary stuff, and I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner. So, yes, expect that security researchers, you know, may probably work with some of these folks in doing reverse engineering and research and development, exploit development, and then, of course, selling those exploits to groups like these. So it's tough. Yeah. So, I mean, I, so this is, wasn't Klopp's first, uh, you know, ransomware exploit for file transfers. You know, earlier this year, they hit Go Anywhere. And then back in 2021, they hit Acceleron's file transfer um, protocol. So, I mean, they understand how rich a target is for, you know, companies trying to move large files between places. No, you know, no indication yet that they are part of this uh, new software that that's being hacked into. It's called WSFTP Server. Um, have you used it before? This product? I haven't used it before, but it's it's, it's classic. It's been around for a very very long time. Um, it's one of those products that you know, kind of like Squid. You know what I mean? It's been around for so long that folks have become accustomed to it. They still use it. Squid's another thing that came out this last couple of weeks with a, a crap load of vulnerabilities. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Whew. Saw that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did. That, that that was a little much. So 
Well, think about it like this. You know, now attackers are going to start looking at software products that have been around for quite some time, that have been implemented and used for quite some time as well. And so those might be good targets for these research and developers, or rather research and uh, um, these research teams or researchers looking for vulnerabilities in mature products. Um, I, I, I would say that these guys were probably going to continue down that path because so far it's been very successful for them. Especially when you're hearing about Klopp making between seventy-five and hundred million dollars. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's insane. These numbers are insane, right. and you got to remember, as these folks are now these attackers, these adversaries, these threat actors, these groups are getting access to these kind of funds. Um, you know, now the problem becomes exponential, right? Because now they instead of doing research and development, they could do that in parallel with just buying zero-day exploits from from you know all sorts of different marketplaces. This is why we're seeing prices for like WhatsApp vulnerabilities going up to eight million, or uh, zero-click vulnerabilities for iPhone and Android going up to you know two to twenty million, depending. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really wild time, and I think that uh, that organizations really need to think think um, on how to to be preemptive, proactive um, in their security measures, and start phasing away from like these flat internal networks, which I'm seeing everywhere. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem. We'll talk about the in another update about flat networks. But but yeah, so thousands of IT teams are dependent on this WS FTP server um, for the unique business-grade features required to assure reliability and secure file transfers for critical data. But then Progress Software, which again is the parent company for this new so this uh, WS FTP and also MoveIt, they listed on their website that their clients include the Denver Broncos, gaming company Rocksteady, H&M Software, and Scientific America um, that uses this product. How do you feel about companies that list their clients? I kind of feel like it's giving the bad guys a target list. I mean, sure, that, that's one way to look at it. But I can also understand why a company would list their clients, especially the clients uh, agree to it, um, because it, it kind of it kind of is self-promoting, right? Hey, these companies trust us, then you can trust us as well. Yeah, I guess I understand that part, but I don't know this. You know, when a, when a vulnerability comes out like this, now they know right where to go to try to you know the first first group of customers to try to exploit. Oh, 100 percent, man, 100 percent, and I. I would have to say that even when I was a bad actor, when I was the bad guy, and I would identify vulnerability, had access to zero days, um, I would take advantage of that as well. I would look to see what what the relationships are in that industry, you know, with that product. What's what's the coverage? What's the ecosystem? Because then that would give me uh, a, a narrow focus rather than trying to scan the internet and, and trying to see where else this software is being installed, you know? And is that really all it comes down to when you have one of these zero days is you guys are scanning for certain things? What, what exactly are you looking for to see how, like, let's say you're fine trying to find customers for this WSFTP. How do, what does that look like on your end? Yeah. So back then, um, let's say before the, the advent or uh, deployments of a, something like, like a Shodan HQ, right? Big shout out to Shodan HQ. Great resource. So before these guys, if you had identified a vulnerability in a software, you would need to scan the internet. You would have to scan, you know, subnets, segments, um, entire regions of the internet to try to identify the service that is running the software and then enumerate that software and see what version, you know, if the version is vulnerable to your exploit. Um, and then you would have to kind of map all that stuff. So it's very noisy. And, and in fact, people still do, this, do that to this day, right? You can't necessarily rely on Google 
searching and and showdown for 100 for I would say for 100 coverage. Um, but now these days, there are a lot of different data wells and search engines that pretty much give you a quick answer, right? And we see journalists use showdown a lot for their stories, like, hey, there's a new vulnerability in WWS underscore FTP. Let's go to Shodan and see how many servers around the world have been documented as running that service. And um, and from there, the attacker would then focus on targeting those services. Uh, it's it's pretty easy these days to try to, 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 I would say, identify potential victims, um, especially if you have an exploit ready for them. Is there a way for companies to help protect themselves against the search engines and the Shodans of the world? Well, I mean, there is, but then that's security through obscurity, right? And that security through obscurity is obsolete. It's not really a good um, concept in mind. So the one thing I would say is this. If you have to use a service that you know would allow, let's say, customers, employees to send files back and forth, which is very important for an organization, you know, then you need to figure out a way to, to kind of implement access controls so that only the people that are required to access that service can access that service. You don't want to expose a service to the entire internet just so that two or three people could access it. If those two or three people are from the same organization, you could probably utilize something like whitelisting, which is it is what it is at the minimum. You know, you could use some sort of centralized service where you know the the partners or employees could access that service um, through some sort of portal, like some SSO portal that's then you know would connect you some, to some sort of internal uh, uh, network or or whatever, what have you, right? The point is you want to make sure that you limit access to that service if you're going to expose it. There's no need to expose it to the entire internet. That's really my point. Um, you know, if you have a service like let's say there's a WSFTP service, uh, a software here, and you're running it as a service for your clients, and it's 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 wide, it, it it is a requirement that all of your clients should be able to access it then you're in a very bad spot because now you're relying on the security of progressive security uh, software, sorry, um, to to ensure that that service will not be compromised. That's hard, right? Because we would never know, and there's no way to really validate whether uh, a software is 100% secure, whether there's no zero days in it, whether there's no security issues with, uh, involved in the software or inside the software. So yeah, it's really it's really much a, a hit and miss. It also applies, I would say, you would, you would also have to apply like your risk appetite to the scenario, right? You know, it, it becomes problematic as you start to uh, bring in more and more software uh, as part of your supply chain. And then you have to rely on these vendors' security posture. And I tell you, uh, I think it's becoming harder and harder. If I was in the shoes of the Denver Broncos, for example, I would really have to sit here and say, okay, we're using this software. We're offering this service for some from some group of people. Obviously, a Denver Broncos fan is not going to log into our FTP server and download images. They can just go to our website. So now that we understand that most people are not going to use that service, why are we exposing it? Well, we may need to use it for partners, maybe marketing. Okay, is there a better way for us to transfer files to those people for marketing? And so once you start asking those questions, coming up with answers, you start to kind of identify gaps and issues, problems, and potential solutions. So eight new vulnerabilities found in this WSFTP protocol. Um, two of the vulnerabilities were severity scores 10 out of 10 and a 9.9 out of 10. One would allow a hacker to execute commands on the victim systems. Another used by attacker to delete or rename the files on a variety of victim assets. They're saying all versions of this uh, saw the WSFTP server were affected by these vulnerabilities. 
all versions. So that's going to be tough. There's some patches out there. So if you guys are running this in your company, make sure you get the patches out there immediately. Fix this stuff. You know, one thing in this article, I want to go back to the beginning with the update on the Move It stuff. You know, we talked about 62 million people and over 2,000 organizations were affected. And that Klopp gained somewhere between 75 and $100 million from this. Mm-hmm. Well, Progress Software recently told investors that the incident would have, quote unquote, minimal business impact on the company. Sure. Uh, again, that, that, that really is tough to pill to swallow. Um, minimal impact on them, but there are 62 million customers and 2,000 organizations and the hundred millions of dollars that went to a criminal organization doesn't seem so minimal to me. So we will see how these class action lawsuits come. Um, I don't know how they're already saying that uh, uh, this class action lawsuit against them is going to be minimal, but uh, we'll see. I mean, they have two different uh, file transfer softwares here that are both been, uh, one has been completely obliterated uh, by a, a group and another one, eight vulnerabilities. And we'll see what happens to that. Yeah. Well, think about it like this, right? So minimal business impacts. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not necessarily on the business side of things. It's hard for me to believe that. Um, especially when you see the impact that um, the ransomware campaign specific to the MoveIt uh, issue, you know, kind of led to the millions of dollars that was that, that you know victims had to pay. I can't imagine that had zero impact or low impact. But even going back to my point earlier, just going on a, a search engine like the Shodan, you type in WS underscore FTP. What do you see? You see numbers, and those numbers go, go back to or you know they go back to assets. In these assets, we're looking at what, you know, close to four thousand um, instances of WS uh, w, uh, WS underscore FTP servers, um, either for SSH or FTP daemon within the United States by itself. Uh, Germany at three twenty six, Canada at two twelve, you know, United Kingdom at one ninety. These are all assets, potential victims that attackers with an exploit can target. Um, and when you look at this list here, and, and this, anybody can look at this, attackers and researchers, people that are curious. You start to see that the coverage is very broad. We're, we're talking about small organizations, medium-sized organizations, and big enterprises. Um, so just be careful out there, folks, and, and pay attention to your logs for sure. So also wanted to give an update on the MGM hack. So the CEO of MGM has come out and kind of give some details. And so I think some of the stuff that he said, we can kind of tease out some of the things that happened in this hack. So. A lot of attribution would be given to a group named Scattered Spider. I think we know about how the naming mm-hmm. conventions go in this stuff and how I feel. <laughs> They're also yeah. known as UNC3944 or Scattered Swine or Muddled Libra. Um, so <laughs> who knows? But but these guys have been uh, you know associated with the Caesars Entertainment hack, the MGM Resorts hack, and now a Clorox hack. Um, the media is reporting them to be in the, the UK and the US. Um, and that they're on the younger side. Um, in May of 2022, the, they started targeting uh, telecommunications firms, um, and they started getting into SIM swapping, um, which makes a lot of sense, but that's how they cut their teeth learning how to social engineer. Then they also got into multi-factor authentication fatigue attacks uh, and phishing by SIMs and telegrams. So I will say there was some reporting saying that this attack on MGM started on September 11, 2023, Um, But then we see on September 12th that MGM put out a press release um, that they had engaged a cybersecurity firm and that the investigation had started. Also on September 12th, MGM put out the SEC's Form 8K identifying that a hack had happened. I'm guessing that if they made initial entry on the 11th that 
MGM could not have engaged a cybersecurity firm, started the investigation, and put out the SEC's required cyber breach form uh, by the next day. Uh, I'm going to guess it was prior to September 11th. Yeah. Well, it, it all depends, right? It depends on their internal security program, their incident response process, the, the policies. It could be possible, but I think that you're probably right. I think that you know maybe it started a little bit earlier. It's possible that... You know, maybe there was an internal investigation prior to communicating upstream to the executives, the board, um, and anybody else. It's not uncommon for uh, internal security teams to start an investigation, look at incidents, and then try to come up with a report for their board at some point within that week or maybe the next week. It all depends on timing for sure. So, I mean, the MGM CEO in the interview, and we'll post a link to some of the uh, on X or some of the stuff he said. Um, he said that the first day was a whack-a-mole. Of course. Um, and that they never got into, quote, unquote, the core systems. They were more in the DNS layer and the communications layer. DNS layer. Do you know what that means? Does that mean that they, the attackers compromised their DNS servers or they were able to create arbitrary DNS records and use it, what, for social engineering perhaps? It could also mean that the attackers got in, you know, whatever way they got in, which we'll get into in a moment, and then they use DNS for commanding and control, right? That could be it. What about authentication? What if so? So the, uh, I'll fast forward a little bit. There's the the CEO says there's two different types of call centers with MGM before this happened. There's one where people call and say, "Hey, my computer's broken. I need help." But then there's a technical side where the technical people call and say they need to get in. And so apparently, scattered spiders, you know, went on LinkedIn, found people that worked for MGM in a technical side uh, through their profile, and then called this line and social engineered their way in. Could there have been another authentication layer, Hector, um, that these guys were able to compromise the the DNS later in order to, you know, sort of authenticate further with with the call center? Let's think about it like this, right? So let's look at it from the from the from the bad guy's perspective. So, so let's say I wanted to social engineer some technical support, the uh, call center, and I had I had done some preparation. Maybe I've identified a potential subdomain hijacking scenario where there was a dangling DNS record for one of the MGM domain assets pointing somewhere. I was able to inherit access to that or gain access to that. Now I would be able to create some sort of phishing campaign around that subdomain hijacking scenario. I can see that happening. Authentication, if, okay, depending on on what service the, uh, the victim here used for authentication, let's say they used... Uh, you know, Okta or Duo for SSO or some other platform, um, you can't just arbitrarily create uh, DNS records and then connect that back to, you know, uh, like a whitelist for MFA to, to, to say, okay, yeah, this is a legitimate service you can authenticate with. It's possible. I mean, I have to look into that. But if I were to, if I were to kind of gauge, try to estimate how they did this, it, you know, if they use DNS in some way, it would probably be for social engineering. I, I, that's that's the way I would look. I, I would need more information for sure. I'll let people, you know, kind of look at the links and the videos. Him talking, it, it, it came across to me as just a, a CEO saying words that he had heard around <laughs> the boardroom over the last few weeks. So yeah, we'll see how it really shakes out. But he did say that day three, uh, it would take us longer to figure out uh, as it would take to have them tell us how to get out of it. Uh, meaning that the encryption, I took that as the encryption. Um, so that's why they didn't pay. Um, and that points to me that MGM had good backups. 
if they can felt reliable to, you know, they could restore their systems to a point and not engage the hackers to decrypt the information that they had fairly good backups at this, this time. Yeah. And, you know, this is one thing I tell folks all the time. Yes, breaches may happen. Yes, you might be a victim at some point. But what's important here is, you know, being resilient, right? If you can incorporate controls, you, you can incorporate good policies uh, and, and implement and enforce those policies in a way that, um, that, you know, would ensure resilience in your organization, then you're in a very good place. And resilience, of course, is a complex topic. It, it involves a lot. You have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to, to, to work on prevention. Um, you have to be confident that um, your policies are, are, are functional. You have to also validate those policies. Just putting something on a piece of document saying, hey, um, or on a document saying, hey, this is what should happen in the event of a breach, uh, doesn't really mean much if you haven't tested it, right? If you haven't proved that policy is actually functional. So having good backups is really going to save you, especially if you have redundancy, especially if you have a way to recover rapidly. You can't just set up a backup system or server on your network and say, okay, cool, we're done. No, because if that server is connected to the domain and domain administrator privileges would allow you access to that backup server, then it is, uh, you know, it, it is academic at best, uh, especially if an attacker gains access and, and gains privileges on your internal network. So uh, it's good to see that they had some sort of solid backup policy in play because otherwise they would have either had to uh, rebuild or pay the ransom, right? So the, the the interviewer asked the CEO, um, you know, what what are some of the main takeaways? And, and his first one was obviously the technical center and the the education around uh, not you know the not being social engineered. But the, he said the second the, the critical takeaway is bifurcation. Bifurcated systems is a critical takeaway. Is his quote? Uh, what's that tell you? It, it points to me flat network, but but does it tell you anything? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it seems like they had a flat network, a legacy environment. They've probably been running the same kind of network infrastructure for quite some time. Maybe they did, or not, they did not have, uh, you know, internal controls to help mitigate lateral movement or, or help limit it. Remember, what's important is, ladies and gentlemen, is that when you're building a network, you're setting up a product, whatever it is, you want to make it expensive for the attacker. The adversary for them, time is money, especially in ransomware. So, you know, if you're if you're running a network that's a straight flat, meaning that the moment the attacker gets in, they're able to access any resource in the network based off of the, the fact that they're in the internal network. Um, the assumption there being that if you're on the internal network, then you're OK to access whatever it is that you need. That doesn't fly anymore. That's 1980s and 1990s concepts. Um, we're at a stage where we need to start looking at micro segmentation. We need to look at. Access controls, authentication, authorization. If someone needs access to a service or a resource, we need to define that they need access to that service or resource. We cannot just give them a blank check and say, okay, you're now an employee of MGM, do what it is you will. That doesn't work anymore. So yeah, I, that's my takeaway from, from you know kind of this explanation here. Yeah, so we'll keep you guys updated as new details come out, but you know, we're getting drips and drabs of it, so we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh yeah, we're talking about hundred million dollars. We're talking uh, talking about needing a bifurcated system, and and again, you can look at the facts of this case. You know, um, this hack uh, it, it affected everything from you know the key cards on doors all the way down to ATMs um, and some payout systems on 
slot machines and, and gaming tables within the casino. Uh, and it went across, you know, multiple locations. So, you know, by the CEO saying their bifurcate is needed um, and then all those systems were affected, you know, point and right at a flat network. And, and he's in Hector's words are, are, are great to try to, you know, stop some of this stuff uh, from future attacks. Well, Chris, you know, this now this brings me up to like, you know, the Ocean's Elevens of the world, right? The, the Ocean's movies, right? Sure. So let's say, can I put a scenario for you? I would love to hear your perspective, right? Especially as someone that has been around for a very long time, has done. Is that an old joke? No, 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 Because I'm 45, I'm five years older than you? You (laughs) bastard. No, 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 I promise. It's not an old joke. (laughs) All right. But you have a wealth of experience. Now. Oh, thank you. um, So with that being said, would it be possible, or is it just crazy? Am I I like, you know, thinking outside the box too much? Would it be crazy if, let's say, a ransomware group were to compromise a casino, cause a bunch of havoc, make make a bunch of systems, you know, um, um, you know, react in a way that they're not supposed to. Meanwhile... The threat actors are on the casino floor just cashing out and exploiting systems or, you know, slot machines and so on. Would that be a possibility? But also, would the FBI, you know, obviously law enforcement were involved here at some point. Would the FBI in this case then look at the casino floor to see, hey, maybe there's, there's some, some collaboration between incidents on the floor versus, um, you know, what happens on the tech side? So from this this standpoint, I, I've did some reading on it. Yeah. And they say, and they say there there is no connection between the gaming controllers with inside the machines and the communication network. So a lot of these places you go to a slot machine and you put like your loyalty card in, um, and it keeps track of how much gameplay you do and that sort of thing. That is a whole separate air gap system within the machine to what the what the gaming stuff is. And so um, supposedly the casinos don't even have access to the gaming side uh, of the, the stuff. So that requires like physical access of opening the machine to make any changes. And there's different record keeping um, and that sort of thing. I think, you know, I would guess that, that they'd be educated quickly. The Las Vegas or Nevada gaming commission probably would take the lead to see whether there's some sort of uh, corruption or, or some sort of influence over that. Um, but the FBI would be partnered with them. Uh, and I'm sure there is a great relationship between the Las Vegas FBI and the Nevada Gaming Association. Hacker in the Fed is very happy to partner with Delete Me. Delete Me is a great company to work with. Their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because of Delete Me's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me convinced me to start using their services as well. We talk about personally identifiable information, PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Data brokers are individuals and companies that specialize in collecting and organizing personal data. These data brokers are out there collecting your information 24-7 from public records such as court records, motor vehicle records, census data, birth certificates, marriage license, voter registration information, bankruptcy records, divorce records, and many more. Data brokers are vacuuming up social media accounts and information they can gather about you and even buying records like your purchase records, credit card records. Hector and I talk every week about a new breach with millions of records being exposed. 
Data brokers are gathering those exposed records that even include your passwords that you use. Then cyber criminals are using your personal identifiable information for things like opening lines of credits and making purchases on your credit cards. It's possible to request data removal on your own and do it manually, but it takes way too much time. That's why we use DeleteMe. DeleteMe is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. DeleteMe removes private information from hundreds of data brokers, and DeleteMe has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by privacy advisors. The service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. DeleteMe's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you will receive a detailed DeleteMe report in seven days. Then DeleteMe scans and deletes all year long. DeleteMe's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. DeleteMe is also a great idea for our family members. Elderly people fall for scams more easily, and scammers target them based on the data they collect online. So protecting our whole family is a good idea. Through our partnership with DeleteMe, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's FED20. Go to joindeleteme.com slash FED and use the code FED20, FED20, for 20% off. The service is great and helps support our show. Again, joindeleteme.com slash FED and use code FED20, FED20, for 20% off all consumer plans. Hector, the next story is the U.S. State Department has no idea if it's IT security actual work, says auditors. So this is, goes back to a, man, what is the U.S. government doing? So auditors have concluded that U.S. Department of State has largely failed to implement an effective security risk program. Quote, the State Department, which handles uh, diplomacy and U.S. foreign policy, wrote a risk management strategy for its IT security. The Government Accountability Office, GAO, said that basically... Uh, where the department gave up. So they wrote the policy and they didn't implement shit, Hector. Yeah, well, you know, that is a conversation I have with CIOs all the time where they're developing, they're trying to deploy policies that on paper look like they should work. But then the problem is once those policies are kind of spread out to the respective departments, IT, security, engineering, et cetera, development and so on, the problem that they're going to face is, well, are these policies being enforced and are they being validated? When was the last time we tested whether or not these controls are working? The CIO at, at some point needs to communicate with his department leads, with their department leads, sorry, to try to sort out whether or not those policies are effective. Now, when they're not effective, and this goes back to that very scary word, Chris, I'm sorry to mention it again. Uh -oh. accountability that's two weeks in a row uh, because we have a problem with accountability we need to start addressing that if i'm a cio i build out policies i'm doing tabletop exercises i'm doing market research i'm bringing outside vendors i'm putting together budgets i'm talking to people and i am creating these policies that need to be enforced 
and my CISO is not working with me on it, or his team is not enforcing it, or they don't have the capabilities, or they don't, it, or they're not ready for that. Then who is responsible for these failures? And it's always going to go away upstream to the guy or the person that created those policies, and they're going, they're responsible. Like, wait, hold on. We deployed these policies three years ago. Why are they still ineffective? And when was the last time we made an audit? So I can understand the concerns, especially here with these auditors that had identified that even when, when it comes to email security, there's a problem within our government. Now, where's the fault lie? That's the question. Yeah. So this investigation did come from, you know, 63 thousand unclassified email messages being swiped by the Chinese um, and that the, they hosted the email on the Microsoft uh, hosted email system. Again, it, it probably, you know, it was unlikely that better cybersecurity habits for the State Department would have directly affected this, but this is what accounted for why this happened. Um, and so the GAO says that in January that nearly 60% of the security recommendations that it had made since 2010 had yet to be implemented by the State Department. So 60% of the things they didn't fix. Um, and that was, you know, uh, tw 13 years ago. Maybe, you know, they'll at the end you'll see maybe it's nine years prior to this. But, you know, it's still, nine. After, let's say at the minimum, nine years, 60% of the things weren't recommended. So... Uh, the next point I want to make is involves end of life. Hector, can you just explain to the audience what end of life means? Yeah, end of life means that a software, product, solution, service is no longer, or rather has reached the end of its development period or support period. That software will not be supported by the vendor any longer. But there's special cases. I really want to point this out to you, Chris, in the audience. Sure. The special cases are that if you are in a very specific industry or... Um, you know, your organization is, I would say, extremely important to the supply chain of an overall security posture of, let's say, the government or the country or your industry. Let's, let's use healthcare as an example. Then the vendor will make special extended licenses available to those organizations where if there are major security incidents or security issues, vulnerabilities, and so on, they may, depending on your license, develop a patch for that system that you're running. There's a pro and con to that. The pro is that in a very old legacy environment where, you know, for various reasons, the organization is unable to update that software due to the sensitive nature of the implementation or infrastructure, or whatever it is, yes, having that extended license is going to help them. However, however, it just perpetuates the problem, right? And we kind of need to start to, you know, take end-of-life systems more seriously and start to kind of phase that out. Because I tell you guys right now, as I'm doing pen tests, internal, uh, specifically internal network pen tests, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing like in 95% of the cases, I'm seeing end-of-life systems, whether they're old Windows systems, um, MS SQL servers, um, all sorts of different platforms that were probably end-of-life, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. So we're talking about like Windows 95 or Windows 7 machines running on systems. Windows 7, Windows 2000, um, you, you get it. And, and really the, the, the scary part on that is because there's so many known vulnerabilities afterwards and they're just not being patched. Uh, they're not being updated for whatever reason. Yeah, but also the fact that since the vendor is no longer working on off of that code base, there may be zero days there that are being exploited that um, are not being addressed by anybody. 
And the vendor may not even address it, especially if they do not have a special extended license with you. Sure. So the GAO found that there were certain installations of operating systems that had reached the end of life over 13 years ago. Oof. So these computers were end of life. Then 13 years happened. And so people, uh, so you know, like Windows, let, let's, I'm, just, I'm not picking on Windows, but Windows changes their operating system every so often. They announce years in advance, hey, we're going to stop servicing this version. We're going to stop servicing XP on this date. But it's years from now. So they give, they give you plenty of time to budget and plan for it and see what's going forward. Um, so 13 years past the end of life. And again, it might be nine years uh, based on, we'll talk about the end of the State Department kind of gave some feedback uh, of the GAO's uh, recommendations, but the, let's say nine to 13 years. That's crazy. Um, that state is operating 23,689 systems and 3,102 network and server operation systems, software installations have been reached their end of the life. We're talking 24,000 systems were en at end of life, past end of life. That's crazy, Hector. It is. And I just I just sent you a very good link. I think you should share with the audience called endoflife.date slash windows. And if we were to go by what you just told us here from this article and from this research, 13 years ago would put that around between Windows Vista and Windows 7, which ended support for those operating systems between April of 2009 and February of 2011. And, and if you look at active support and security uh, support as columns, you see that for those systems 13 years ago um, that, that reached end of life, their active support ended eight and seven years ago, and their final security support, that includes all extended licenses, ended three years ago, back in January of 2020. What does that tell you? Hector, I don't know. I'm surprised every week about the subjects we get into. I never thought we would have to be explaining end of life and how crazy it would be for uh, for 13 years and past a U.S. government agency. Um, you know, whether we're talking about password controls or stuff we've been talking about for 30 years, I really thought you know end of life stuff would be well past. But I took the link. I'll include it for the the listeners to check it out. But these numbers are insane. So, you know, the GAO came back and said, you know, one of the big problems is the states, uh, the state departments, their their structures, their IT structures sort of split and responsibilities are split between the department CIO and also other sub-organizations. So the CIO does not have oversight over all of the infrastructure. Um, some departments have it. So limiting the CIO's ability to effectiveness oversee all of the entire department, sort of, you know, bad approach. You agree? I agree. The CIO's job there, literally, what, they, what the CIO is supposed to be is the person that has a good understanding of infrastructure and has to build policies around that. So as you start creating and implementing and adding new technologies, your CIO needs to be in the know because they need to then create policies around that. They need to then hopefully enforce that by trickling down and delegating. And each department head needs to then follow those policies. If they're not following those policies, then those policies, again, are academic in nature. They're just theoretical. And that's not useful to anybody. 
No. And then and then the State Department did have a uh, tracking like database, an IT asset tracking database, but at least 20 diplomatic outposts um, weren't didn't have that information updated in there. They didn't store information in that database. So let's say the CIO did have access to uh, all the different things. They, they, they didn't have a full picture of what really was happening within the organization. Well, so. where does that lead us to? Asset management, which we, we talk about all the time. You know, if an, if an organization doesn't have a good understanding, at the very least a catalog of the assets they're running on their internal network, then how are you supposed to enforce certain policies on those assets, right? Um, it becomes problematic. And I've seen this a lot where CIOs, CISOs, IT directors, and so on are not in proper communication and or there are other variables that are kind of separating um, their communication or limiting their communication. That's problematic. We've seen that a lot, Chris. To me, it's the only reason poor, you know, asset management is the only reason to have these end of life issues um, because it's not listed somewhere and you don't know about it is the only reason I can come up with why certain systems would go out of life, uh, end of life. I know we talk about it in the hospitals and, and there's, you know, a lot of hospitals are attacked and they said, you know, oh, we couldn't upgrade our systems because there's, there's software, there's life-saving software that we can't shut down. It doesn't function. It only works on XP or Windows 7. It hasn't been rewritten. Well, you have to invest and rewrite the software. Um, you know, th there are solutions to running these out-of-date software mm -hmm. on, on new systems. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that from, from folks in the healthcare industry where I would find a Linux server from, you know, running a 2.2 or 2.4 kernel. Brother, we're talking about that's like 15 plus years, right? Yeah. And so what am I hearing when I'm speaking to the CISOs or the security engineers? Well, here's the problem, right? That specific software running on that specific server is something that we cannot replace at any time soon because the vendor has gone out of business or the vendor was acquired. The software no longer exists. We have a lifetime license, but we, get, we're get, we no longer get support. So if we take this machine down or we firewall it, we're going we're gonna to potentially impact the business. We're going to impact the internal network. We're going to impact some sort of process. And we're not in a position to deal with that. Okay. Well, I understand that. I get it. Because at, at this point... You know, you have to be open-minded. You have to also, have, you know, think, you know, think, you know, with that uh, perspective. You have to apply that to your perspective. But then it's like, okay, cool. So, how or who is going to deal with that problem? Is this something? I know you don't like government oversight. I know, I know. You know, you, you're you're big on that, uh, limiting government overreach, right? Well, I like government oversight on the government. Yeah, yeah. I like them checking themselves. I don't like the restrictions of, that they place on citizens sometimes. I, I respect that, right? I'm, I'm with you on that. Mm. But now let's talk about healthcare. Okay. I'm hearing this a lot from the healthcare industry. So at what point does the FDA or some other you know, uh, agency or organization dealing with healthcare-specific issues steps in and says, okay, so there are vendors that at one point existed that at, 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 at this point do, do not. And there are hospitals around the country still running this software from a vendor that no longer exists. How do we deal with this problem? And I'm not really sure. And I'm sure I would love that anybody in the healthcare industry that understands this problem more, if they could just reach out to us and give us some perspective on it, because I would love to hear how, they're how they would deal with this problem. And is there anything the FDA could do, Right. I'm not so sure, but yes, I, I've seen this mostly from hospitals, bro. 
I mean, a couple more punches. So the, the CIO uh, the, within the State Department must grant or deny requests to deploy operating systems. And they found that 56% of the such systems were running without proper authorization. So over half the systems uh, were running without telling the CIO. So we can't really kind of blame it all on the CIO here. Um, but then another quote that I that in the article was, the GAO's conclusions are stark. Uh, if these issues aren't fixed, it will be potentially open season on one of the most important agencies in the American government. Will be? What do you mean will be? You've got end-of-life systems that are 13 years old. It is already. Exactly. <laughs> it is a complete open system. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's crazy. Frustrates me. Now, so the, the State Department punched back a little bit on this one, uh, and they, they're claiming that the GAO began its review in 2019, and the re report represents a snapshot in time. Um, so it was only, you know, the, all these things were in 2019. They've said since then, you know, they've stood up a Department of Chief Information Security Office in 2021, and they've tried to address a lot of these issues. You know, that's sort of the pushback, you know, that, that you're only you're looking at old data, but I don't know. I don't I don't know if they've been able to fix all this, so we'll keep an eye on it. Hopefully we don't see a big hack in the state department in the near future. Yeah, I mean, a good point from the state department. Yes, that's very true. Uh they've made some 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 huge leaps since 2019, 100%. Okay, cool. I'm glad for the response. Well, maybe it's time to get the GAO to do another audit. Let's see what let's see what the results are now. Yeah, but even in 2019, end of life systems that go back to 2013. Yeah, that's crazy. No, that's it, it crazy. is crazy. <laughs> Let's say you know. All right, Hector. This one I, again, another subject that I thought we had moved past in cybersecurity. <laughs> the Psych Senate's e <laughs> yeah, the Senate's email system melted down in the face of a security test. So the Senate sent out an email that was run through Microsoft Outlook um, to all the staffers. They were alerted by an email to report the the security alert and they followed the instructions to reply to their status so thousands of senate employees replied all which seemingly crashed the email system so an email goes out says hey report where you're at there's been an incident this is a test and and everyone hit reply all can you imagine in 2023 we're still being taken out by reply all now i will remember back in the day of old email this was what probably late 90s, early 2010s, I used to love when people would hit reply all. Yeah. And it would just get, please take me off this list. I don't want to be part of this list. And you would just go all day. It would be so entertaining all day long. And I bet <laughs> you know, young kids listen to this like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, emails would be sent out and somebody who didn't want to be part of it and they they replied to a group. Um, and then it just, the whole day, people like, I don't know why I'm getting this. I, you know, then people explain, well, you're part of a group and you, you, you know, and so, but now, the same reply all took down the U.S. Senate's email. <laughs> well, it reminds me of like the uh, listen when I got on the internet uh, back in the nineties. This was already thing. This was already like a big thing, right? It was like uh, what people would do is they would create these massive chain mails. Remember those? Sure. With hundreds or thousands of people, it was ridiculous. Um, and it, it would just it, it, the chain mails themselves would be kind of like. Hey, if you do not forward this to like five of your friends or family members, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're going to have stunted growth for the next three years. Some wild, you know, message. And people would fall for it. They'll add their family members. It'll just keep growing and growing and growing. I'm surprised that didn't like take down the internet at one point. I'm sure it had some impact on mail servers, right? Absolutely. But uh, yes, there's a couple of things from this story that, you know, my takeaway, I don't want to be a uh, an ageist, right? <laughs> sure. But you got to remember a lot of the folks in the Senate 
um, you know, are probably of the age where they may, may not be tech savvy. They should be. But the fact that they're just replying all to each other is pretty insane. But well, you don't have to be an ageist based on the 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 people that you know are in the Senate. This was run by uh, an IT department. I mean, I, I'm going to guess the Senate has. Well, I know the Senate has their own IT infrastructure and their own you know IT people. Um, you know, how did they not know that you know the instruction says reply to this email? People are just going to hit reply all. I mean, so the House side of things got things right. Um, they didn't instruct their employees to re- to report or reply their location. They simply sent out instructions and told them where to where to shelter. It was just an instruction based email. But like, I, I just don't understand how an IT department these days could, you know, especially you know the U.S. Senate um, could even tell people to hit reply all. Judging by the story, you could tell what happened, right? So the the, the IT folks. They added, they went to do kind of like a like a mail campaign, right? They sent out an email to a bunch of senators or whatever, their offices. And instead of adding each individual person as part of like a blind carbon copy or BCC, they just CC'd everybody. I mean, I'm assuming yeah. that's what happened here, right? Yeah, it had to be. Yeah. I, yeah. BCC is the savior of the reply all. <laughs> it, it should be, but apparently not in this case. But also, guys, audience here, pay attention, right? This is also a security issue. Not only you know a funny little story here or an annoyance for people that were not expecting the influx of probably hundreds of emails. Um, if you're creating a campaign where you have to email a bunch of folks, the one thing you don't want to do is CC everybody because in a way now you're kind of exposing who's on that list, who's being emailed, right? Um, this is why you know BCC or a blind carbon copy is is probably the, the move, and it should be the move. But no, yeah, this is. Uh, this is a fun story. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely have harvested some good emails out of uh, where they forget to blind copy people on things. So, Hector, Cisco can't stop using static passwords. Really? So, yes, yes, I know it's been an issue for many, many years, um, but there's a new Cisco vulnerability in its emergency responder product. Uh, the vulnerability is due to the presence of a static user credentials uh, for the root account that are typically reserved uh, for the use during deployment. And so the attacker can exploit this vulnerability by using the account to log into the affected systems. Um, let me ask you. So this has been a problem for Cisco for years and other products. I worked a major national security case where this was a, a problem. Yeah. Uh, the point of having the static username and password, for especially for a root, is so that the person making the software, the Cisco's of the world, uh, has less call-ins to their call center, correct? Or is there is there another reason to have a hard-coded uh, username and password that then you susp- that you your expectation is that the end client either removes that account or changes the password? Yeah, you yeah you bring up a very good point. Absolutely. So I think that for the most part, at least in, at least in the early days, the reason for a static password would be, yes, to minimize uh, the potential of support calls and tickets because in the manual, you would probably have um, documentation on, hey, if you've locked yourself out of your product, just log in using root, root, whatever, right? Um, But we've seen situations where static passwords were kept inside of a product by accident because during the development process, developers would create static passwords um, in their like uh, in their virtual environments, in the sandbox environments for the products, and they'll have to de- redeploy and deploy and redeploy over and over. And instead of having to reset that password hard each time, they would say, "Okay, well, we have a default password in there. We'll just log in, do the work, and then kind of move from there." So there's like there's this two there's at least two paths here as to why this happens. 
Uh, one is yes, with exactly what you said. Um, if a, if a, if a, if a uh, customer locks themselves out of the product, they always have a way back in. It'll avoid support calls. It'll avoid support tickets. Um, you know that price saves Cisco a lot of money. But also, this is the development process, right? The developer forgot to remove static passwords. Now there may be an, also an arbitrary path to this, ladies and gents, which is maybe the vendor and/or a rogue employee put in static passwords as a backdoor to the product, and we've seen that as well in this industry. Hopefully, Cisco can solve this issue, um, and uh, and clients can realize that maybe this is an issue with, with if you have a static username and password that comes with the device, you change it. I know we come across it all the time when we're doing looking into helping companies secure their networks. Printers, this is a big issue. Um, security cameras, this is a huge issue. Um, you know, you just go into the user manuals, you find a, a, a security camera system on the network, you go to Google, click the make and model, and there's the user manual with a hard coded username and password right in it. You know, people want plug and play devices. The problem with it is sometimes it comes with security risks. This was a big problem for routers for a long time, hence the connection mm -hmm. to Cisco was a big problem for like IoT devices and still is to this day. Um, in fact, we talked about this a while back when we kind of talked about like uh, where we kind of sorry when we're going kind of going over um, how to deal with IoT devices that are coming from abroad, right? Um, a lot of these devices are coming with static passwords or backdoor accounts. Um, who's going to audit that before they're they're being sold in the American market or in the market in general? All right, Hector, let's get to some listener questions. If you guys want to ask Hector and I a question, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. We love your questions, and we, uh, you guys have had some really good ones. So, Hector, the first question comes from Brandon. He's a CTO at a company, and we're just going to leave it at a CTO, his position, not where he is. And Brandon writes, we're discussing implementing SSO, single sign-on, uh, in our organization. Management wants to make employees onboarding easier, and make it easier for other employees to log into their emails, Zoom, Jira, internal tools we develop, etc. From what I understand, SSO would give an employee one username and password to sign into any service we configure with SSO. This mean this seems to violate the quote "don't reuse passwords" rule. Uh, what are your thoughts on SSO, and what are some of the security considerations? So, first, Hector, can you explain what SSO is? Yeah, so as you said, it's a single sign-on, right? That's, that's what SSO really stands for. Um, and it's an authentication method that allows users to access multiple applications, websites, services uh, with a single set of credentials. So think about it as a way of, uh, let's try to visualize that. For, uh, visualize it for folks that have not dealt with SSO, um, especially in a corporate environment. Imagine a scenario where your, your corporation, your company, um, provides you a URL, a website, a link. You go to that link and you authenticate with your Active Directory credentials or your, your corporate credentials. Now, once you log into that portal, you get access to other services. You click on the services you need, let's say for finance or um, email, and you click on the application and voila, boom, you're magically logged in, magically logged into that service or application. You didn't have to re-authenticate. You didn't have to go through the process all over again. Um, that's kind of what SSO is. And you, some of you may also experience SSO when you're logging into a website, right? Let's say you want to go to uh, a marketplace and it says, hey, sign in with your Google account or sign in with your Facebook account. Um, that definitely utilizes SSO as well. So hopefully that, that gives you guys some, some ideas to what it is that we're talking about here. But SSO can, is more than just a username and password, right? It can also involve multi-factor authentication. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, remember, SSO is not a silver bullet, right? By no means. It's it's a it's a way of centralizing authentication. 
Um, and with that, you could also add multi-factor authentication. You could add security keys. You could add pass keys. You could use bio biometrics. You could use whatever tools that are available to you, okay? Uh, and so it's very important that your organization, uh, Brandon, you have to make sure your organization, as you guys, as your team implements SSO, you want to also incorporate the other mechanisms that will allow um, or, or reduce uh, a potential uh, lateral movement or potential abuse of, let's say, stolen credentials. Yeah, MFA, access controls. Um, you want to limit which employees with their accounts have access to which services. Okay. But you want to do that anyways. I mean, take SSO or not SSO anyways. You want to make sure people only have access to things they need to have access to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it goes back to our conversations about like the uh, uh, the zero trust model, right? Micro segmentation and, uh, uh, you know, dealing with the authentication issues by limiting the scope, you know, controlling access and resources by means of authorization, right? So there's a lot of benefits, you know, reducing the login to multiple sites and applications is one. Um, being able to enforce stronger and more realistic password policies, that's another. Um, you know, of course, there's other benefits like easing the burden on tech support and help desk. There's a lot of benefits to it. Of course, there's downsides. Like I said, there's no, it's not a silver bullet. But it's definitely an enhancement than what a lot of organizations are still doing today, which is we have 10 different sources, services, resources, applications, websites. So you need 10 different logins. And in most cases, the client or the employee will reuse the same passwords for those accounts. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you kind of covered a lot of the the benefits. You know, the downside is you know, uh, high, you know, requires high availability. Um, so if your SSS, SSO service goes down, now your employees have lost their access to a bunch of things. You know, and it also introduces risk if you you have multi-user workstations. So if one employee logs in and doesn't fully log out, and somebody else comes up to use that machine, uh, they may then have access to you know the previous user's uh, account access. So you have to force those logouts. And then also there's some you know development, uh, some deployment complexity. So your IT team has to you know have the ability to to set this all up. I, I mean, you know, at Naxo we you know we we got a guy super smart guy named Matt. He 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 set up SSO for all of us, um, and it works great. But you know there's some front end you know complexity to that that you have to get it done right and in, in the right accesses and you know some fine tuning. So you know if your IT team can handle it, you know it, it's all right. But you know you got to make sure you have the people in place to do it. So there are some downsides, but I agree with Hector. The upsides outweigh all of, all of those downsides. Oh yeah, a thousand percent. And uh, and Brandon, I think you guys are gonna do fine. I uh, hope we answered your questions. If you have any specific questions, please feel free to reach out um, because you know we could definitely talk about this all day. It's it's definitely an improvement. I, I assure you. But we could also think about maybe going to Fido Two Keys if you listened to last week. That's right. <laughs> Let's go. All right. So the next one is sort of long. It's a it's a long story, and I've tried to kind of pare it down a little bit, but it was very well written, Hector. So um, I apologize if uh, my reading bothers people, but uh, I will try to get through this as best as possible uh, because I do think it's a good question in the end. So uh, it's JJ, and he wants to keep it sort of anonymous, and I think the story will will tell you why. So JJ writes, "Thanks for the podcast. You always contain fantastic stories and topics." Uh, and this podcast has become one of my all-time favorites. Well, thank you so much, JJ. At my previous employer, I was asked to gather information on OT practices that are that were being made by other departments in the company that had similar infrastructure and mission-critical systems as what our department was planning to develop, deploy. 
The only problem was that the other departments were less than cooperative, giving me zero information that I requested and even not returning my calls or accepting meetings to discuss the topics. So I had to find a way to complete the task at hand with no help from my coworkers. At the time, we had an IT application that we used to manage our assets. As I thought about how I could obtain the information I needed, I realized that this application had a central database, which all of those uncooperative coworkers also used. On top of that, the application was an off-the-shelf product that leaked the database type on the splash screen for login. Also on that splash screen was a copyright notification for the date circa 1985. Ooh. Long story short, I was able to use a basic SQL injection to obtain system-level privileges in the software and get access to the information I needed, and then some. I gave the information to my supervisor and told him not to ask where it came from. Uh, we, he was very appreciative, and we were able to complete our project more efficiently than other ongoing projects at that time. That led to others in the department, including multiple supervisors, to ask me to perform various shadow IT and shady activities uh, in an effort to promote system uptime in our production environment. One example is that our IT department performed lease replacements on PCs uh, that were attached to manufacturing equipment and failed to install the correct communication drivers for softwares that engineers need to use to keep production running. We had a downtime event during a second shift while no IT people were available to remedy the situation. So one of my supervisors called me to the equipment and asked if there was anything I could do. I told him and everyone else to walk away for 10 minutes and don't ask any questions. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Once everyone was gone, I powered down the PC, physically disconnected the PC from the corporate network, accessed the unsecured BIOS, and changed the boot order to allow me to boot into my own USB bootable Linux OS. Once the system is on my own environment, I copied the SAM file and associated files from the host PC, cleared out the local admin password, and then rebooted into the host OS. That allowed me to install the missing drivers for the engineering software. After I was done, I booted again into my Linux OS and restored the original SAM file and logs so that the changes I made to the local admin account were not noticed by IT. That's hacking, Hector. Yeah, man. There's so many policies and so many things that are going wrong here. But yeah, continue, please. At the end of the day, we were able to get the machines running again several hours before IT to get anyone on site. We saved the companies hundreds of thousands of dollars by minimizing the downtime in the event alone. So I decided to take access to the local admin account a step further to minimize MTTR in future events such as this. Lo, lo and behold, I'll, I'll summarize because it's getting a little long. He was able to crack the admin password, find out the pattern that they used to they change the IT password every year, uh, and then further have the IT password to all the environments going after that. My question to you are this. One, could the company ever prosecute me if they found out what I was doing during their, my time there? And two, do you ever think there will be an acceptable place for this type of activity when used for the right reasons? Hector, sort of ethical and policy and legal questions. What are your initial thoughts to this story? My initial thoughts is that the organization that you're working at, JJ, has a lot of problems, my friends. And these are problems that seem deep-seated. It seems like they're, they're very old since it's not something new. The fact that, you know, 
there's no proper asset management. Remember, asset management is not only cataloging assets. It's also, um, you know, a store for credentials in case something like this happens. You need to be able to recover when a system is not functioning and your IT support can't be there. The fact that supervisors are coming to you to help them deal with problems and you're leveraging vulnerabilities to kind of, you know, uh, produce a solution is problematic. What that tells me is, my friend, that that organization is ripe for compromise. And um, and a lot of things that you did uh, could be leveraged by a bad actor. That SQL injection you leveraged, that's something that should be fixed. That's not something that should be used as kind of like, hey, I know this secret trick to, to kind of fix this one problem. That's a problem, my friend, um, that needs to be addressed. The thing with the password resets once a year, um, that doesn't sound right to me. The fact that you guys are not using something like uh, like uh, a LAPS, um, you know, which is a local administrator password solution for the internal network, that seems to be an issue. Once an attacker is able to compromise your internal network, they get the admin credential for one host. It seems like then they have access to admin uh, credentials to every host in the network. That's another issue. Um, and here's my final take on this. And Chris, I want, I want to hear your perspective from your side of things. Your supervisors are coming to you. They're asking you what these. They're asking you to do these these tasks. It doesn't seem like you work for IT or support because otherwise you would have the access and resources you need to perform these tasks when they're coming to you. Uh, they could open an internal ticket for you to do the job. Um, in a way, you're circumventing whatever policies are in place, assuming there are any policies set by somebody being enforced by someone. And so, if I were you, I would one start documenting all of those requests. Start documenting all the work you've done for whom, for when, and, and why. And then uh, I would probably start looking for another job. I'll be honest with you. This doesn't sound right. Yeah, so the results uh, can't be driven, you know, can't be uh, an excuse for the actions. Um, yes, you saved the company hundreds of thousands of dollars in this story um, and minimized downtime. Um, those are great results, but the actions taken could be seen as a corporate policy violation uh, could be seen as a crime uh, if, if wanted to be pushed that far. Um, and so it's just, like Hector said, it's a dangerous practice. Um, I think these these issues need to be addressed more with the company um, than these the workarounds. Um, you know, it's, it's good that the, you were, you know, found competent and that your supervisors want you to do more, uh, but they are putting you in a dangerous spot. Um, you know, somebody in legal within this company could come after you and, you know, who knows whether the excuse of, well, my boss asked me to do it. Um, you know, that's not really an excuse that's going to keep you from being fired. Um, so, you know, pointing out the security, you know, holes in the network, you know, I, I probably is, is a good reason to, to tell people um, within the IT, you know, the, the part that kind of makes it a little... A little sketchier for me is when you deleted the log entries and replaced the old logs. You know, there there wasn't really a reason for that. You you know, you certainly can say, hey, the company had you know was going to have hours and hours of downtime and lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I went in there and I you know changed it so we could put these drivers on there and, and let the systems work. We start altering logs and trying to hide your tracks. That's where it gets a little little strange for me. So. Uh, and I think I was wishy-washy. I think I had a different opinion uh, before I, you know, read this for the podcast. When I read it, when it came in, I was like, "Well, good on you for solving these problems." These IT departments sounds like they really screwed up here. 
Um, but you know, I, I just think you're you're taking on a lot of responsibility, and uh, it, it could come back and, and backfire you on on you. So, do I think that there's will ever be a place where the, uh, this is an acceptable practice? Probably not. Uh, I think you need to raise it up to management. And uh, if management doesn't fix it, then yeah, I agree with Hector. You might want to be looking at a different place because, um, you know, being that there's an issue that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can't see any manager in the company say, yeah, we should need to keep going on with this. Yeah. And, and to be honest, you know, uh, JJ is looking like an insider threat at this point. You know, that's these are the kind of actions that could be looked upon very negatively, my friend. You know, legal doesn't understand context. Legal doesn't understand nuance. They might in legalese, but on the tech side, they're going to look at this and say, wait, so you're telling me that this guy, one of our employees, has all the local admin access or passwords to every host on our network. He is able to leverage exploits against our database servers and get access carte blanche to data that he's not supposed to. Is he And deleting logs about that activity. Exactly right. I know people who were arrested for less than this. Yeah. I knew, Hector, you would eventually bring it back to insider threat. I know you want to win <laughs> that bet of 2023 being the year of the insider threat. Every single week, you bring it back to the insider threat. It's going to be ransomware. You know it's going to be ransomware. Well, let me ask you something, brother, right? <laughs> yeah. Naxo, you guys are yep. running a business. You hire a guy. He's an intern. He's really cool, very smart. Don't get me wrong. JJ has great skills here. He's obviously, yeah, he's obviously, he's obviously very knowledgeable. He has a lot of great experience. You bring someone like that in, and uh, let's say one of your colleagues has an issue with email and he can't get access, and you know your IT your IT staff is out for the weekend, it's a holiday week or something, and this guy goes and circumvents your controls and does all these different things and leaves no logs behind. And you don't find out about it until three months later. This all this stuff happened. What's going to be your response? Can't be trusted. Fired. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's my knee-jerk reaction. I mean, I, obviously, there's some probably some nuance to it and and something like that. But my knee-jerk reaction is that circumventing security policy, not letting people know in the immediate, um, not getting permission ahead of time. You know, uh, again, JJ scenario. You know, he had supervisors coming to him and asking him to do these things ahead of time. Um, so a little bit different than the scenario you put me, but, but trying to hide things and circumventing things and, you know, just, it's, it's not, it's not something that we could have. Well, and I'll, I'll leave you with one last point. Every time we see a big incident in the news, in the news, you know, some big hack or accidental deletion of server files, whatever, what is the usual response? Oh, it was the intern. <laughs> yeah. 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 The supervisor is going to point the finger right at you, brother. Think about that. So the next question, Hector, is from PC. He writes, hey, guys, uh, I've chosen not to create a LinkedIn profile because I perceive it as a security risk to share my employment details online. For example, at my workplace, we once received a LinkedIn request for someone offering $10,000 for inside information about our company and clients. I've also noticed that other websites scrape LinkedIn profiles, potentially associating my name, email, and other details with my employer. Do you think there are benefits to keeping such information private? And what's your perspective on this? Uh, thank you, and I love your show. 
Well, PC, we talked about it earlier. This is exactly how the MGM hack started. Um, those guys at Scattered Spiders went in went to LinkedIn and found uh, IT people working at MGM and then called the hotline and pretended to be these guys. Um, so you're, it's not paranoia. Uh, this is happening. Um, and the MGM hack isn't the only one where LinkedIn was involved. But yes, I definitely think there's a benefit to keeping such information private. Um, I keep my life as private as possible. Um, I, you know, before this podcast, I I didn't share information about my family in any sort of way. A lot of those details were just speculation. I don't wear a wedding ring because I don't want people to be able to gleam information from that. Um, you know, the, uh, when I was in the FBI, I was all about protecting my, my personal information. I, you know, sort of now in the private sector, um, I have a LinkedIn profile because I have to drive business. I have to get people looking to hire a person like me with my skill set. Um, and LinkedIn is, is, you know, sort of where people go for that. So, you know, you have to weigh, you're weighing the different, two different sides, uh, bringing business in and making new business versus having your private information out there. Um, just having your information out there, if you're not looking for to bring in business, yeah, probably you're probably taking the best approach. Hector, what's your perspective on this? I totally agree. I think this is a great question. Thank you, PC, for this. This is a really good question. Great question, in fact. That's a great question. Uh, yes. <laughs> it depends. I think LinkedIn works great for people like myself, people like Chris, and others that have to drive business or are doing marketing or are networking especially for me that I do a lot of speeches or even the podcast. People want to reach out to me. They want to ask questions directly. It's a great opportunity for them to do that with LinkedIn. And I'm totally fine with that. I've, I've assessed the security risk. I've, I've, I've accepted the fact that LinkedIn, you know, uh, you know, is, is within my risk appetite. If I were in your shoes and I did not need to have networking potential in LinkedIn, I did not need to drive business. I did not need to market anything. I did not need to network with people in my industry. Then yes, I would probably not have a LinkedIn either, uh, 100%. You know, personal security, first of all, people talk about operational security a ton. It's a very common part of the conversation where we're talking about, well, how do we secure an organization with social, social media? Well, we have to be very careful not to leak operational security, potential gaps or failures. Um, you don't upload your ID and so on. But the same applies for personal security, right? If you, don't, if you do not want associations between you your personal life, your business life, your hobby life, etc., then you have to consider the fact that social media and other elements like it are going to be a problem for your personal security. So big, big kudos to, to you, PC, for identifying the risks, understanding that um, those risks uh, do exist, and committing to your personal security and not, not the association. So kudos to you. Last question is from Cody, and he writes, gentlemen, I found you all after Chris's interview with Lex. I love hearing your show and truly appreciate your partnership and Hector's journey. I feel like these days hacking and scams are cousins, and I would appreciate a crossover between your channel and CoffeeZilla. Uh, I struggle with the fact that many of the things CoffeeZilla uncovers don't get prosecuted. Uh, I would like Chris's take on why that doesn't happen, given the time and research he puts into it. Uh, this is coming from a white-collar individual who would like white-collar crime to be prosecuted. Thank you. So, Cody, I agree with you. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, all crime is sort of trying to explode, not just white-collar crime um, out there. Uh, and so, yeah, we are very open to a, a collaboration or a crossover with CoffeeZilla. So if anybody knows CoffeeZilla, uh, knows how to get a hold of him and thinks there, there should be some sort of uh, crossover episode with Hacker and the Fed, 
more than welcome to do it. Uh, that goes for really kind of any sort of uh, other you know media out there that you guys think would be a, a good collaboration between Hacker and the Fed and and whatever they're putting out. Um, you know, I, I'm we're very open to that. Hector, uh, do you watch Coffeezilla? Have you made him aware of any of the videos? Absolutely, I've been watching Coffeezilla for a while. I love his content, love his YouTube channel, love his his community. He's done some really good work. Big shout out to him and his team. Um, you know, in their ten million dollar you know uh, uh, office, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, yeah, big shout out to them. I, I love that stuff, man. It's always good to see people investigating, researching. Um, and then putting together a way to disseminate information in regards to scams. Now, when it comes to hacks, we try to do our best here, but we would definitely absolutely love to collaborate in some way. Um, you know, and I would love to do, you know, be able to check out that office. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to go out there and see it. So great questions, guys. Uh, if you have a question for Hacker and the Fed, just reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com and hopefully uh, uh, we'll be able to answer it on the show. We have good merchandise for Hacker and the Fed. You guys really want to support the show and keep the show going longer. We would much appreciate going to hackerinthefed.com uh, to get your Hacker and the Fed merchandise. We have hoodies and t-shirts. Just this week, we added sweatshirts. Um, we also have custom orders. We, uh, all of our merchandise comes with either Hacker and the Fed logo or That's a Great Question, now available on t-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. Um, we do offer international shipping. Um, again, it's hackerinthefed.com for your merchandise, and it really goes a long way to help support the show. Um, new episodes every Thursday. Download, subscribe, or wherever you get your podcast. Hector, it was a thick one. Lots of C's. Um, really appreciate <laughs> doing the show with you. Um, and uh, it was fun talking to you. Awesome, brother. It was a pleasure as always, and I'm looking forward to the next. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.